Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Please join me in prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. The Old Testament reading today is from the 17th chapter of Genesis, verses 1 through 7 and 15 through 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout your generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come for her. Thus saith the Lord. The Gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter, verses 27 through 34, and I am reading from the Common English Bible. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages near Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, And what about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples, The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed, and then after three days rise from the dead. He said this plainly. But Jesus took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This is the word of the Lord. I love it when kids tell you jokes they probably don't get. (laughs) Years ago, I remember vividly as Samantha, fresh off her first few days of kindergarten, told me one she'd heard in her Sunday school class. What did the sweet potato say to the pumpkin? I have no idea, I said. I am what I am. (laughs) 
We laughed, even though she'd probably never seen the bulging armed sailor named Popeye, nor ever heard the line first made famous in 1933. But if it was funny to me, it was funny to her. And she loved repeating the line again and again as she marched in time with it. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. This ebullient five-year-old girl repeated with gusto that bold declaration of ultimate self-acceptance. I am what I am. I wrote in my journal that night that I wondered if I could ever say those words with clarity and with certainty. Though first a child of God, I was still a child trying to define myself, shaped by the affirmation and criticism of those around me. Would Samantha, would I, someday possess Popeye's philosophy of full self-acceptance? Would I get there in my 20s? Would we get there in our 50s? Would it require years of therapy? <laughs> would my family, would my church family, would my personal relationship with Jesus would these help me to know and accept myself? And if so, then what? <clears throat> Who am I? It is a question we all ask and explore and express. I am is a statement of identity. We use I am statements to help others know us. In an election year, I am statements are ubiquitous. Each candidate completing the sentence a slightly different way for each audience. On Thursday, Donald Trump made headlines responding to the Pope by saying, I am a Christian. Some declarations become famous, such as, I am Malala. Sometimes we use I am statements to give ourselves a pep talk. Remember Stuart Smalley, a Saturday Night Live comical motivational speaker who always told himself, I am good enough, I am smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> a lot of our time on this planet is spent figuring out how to complete the sentence, I am. We self-explore, we strive, we try on, so that we can find the clarity and peace of Popeye to be able to say, I am what I am. Richard Rohr, in his outstanding book, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life, describes the first part of our lives as establishing our identity, answering the I am question, knowing and securing our gifts, our passions, our place in the world, figuring out what makes us unique and special, our ego molded by praise and insults and experiences, and the second part of our lives as living out who we are, a time when the fragility of our ego diminishes, the strength of our will increases. As Andrew Solomon beautifully said it in his book, Far From the Tree, you and I find the interior daring to become ourself, and then the outer audacity to express that self. In the second part of life, our expressions are more outer-focused, we tend to be more generous, less selfish. Mastering self-acceptance, we can put our I am's to use for the world more effectively. When we have the answer to I am, we live fully into the I will. Our search for identity gives way to our search for purpose, for our lives to make a difference. 
As Christians, we've become and expressed the self in relationship with the Holy One who made and redeems us. Who has God made me to be gives way to what does God have for me to do and how do I do it well? If we don't possess a positive and sturdy answer to the I am questions, if we don't know ourselves in God's eyes as beloved, imperfect, and fully accepted, the I will part of our life can be very hard. At the very least, we may choose unwisely a spouse or pursue a lifeless profession. We might helicopter parents and push our children to our ideals of success or simply remain uncomfortable in our own skins. I listened to interviews this week with Susan Klebold, mother of Columbine shooter Dylan and author of her new memoir, A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy. Dylan never got the right I am answers. Depressed and suicidal, he tried to find out who he was by asking the world around him, that is, his classmates. In their words and actions, they told him he was weak and a weirdo. They humiliated him in the cafeteria by spraying ketchup on him, hurling sexual slurs at him, and later setting his hair on fire. Who was he? Unacceptable. So then he turned to those closest to him to ask, who am I? And his friend since grade school, Eric Harris, was all too happy to tell him, You are an anti-Semitic psychopath like me. You are a killer. Dylan did not seem to seek the feedback of those who truly loved him. He did not seem to seek the feedback of the God who made him and made him good. He accepted an answer that was all too wrong. Not beloved, not accepted, not sure of himself. And it was in that state that a variety of significant factors converged to lead to one horrific event. In our search to complete the I am about ourselves, the answers the world gives us, the people who love us, and God, those responses matter so much. Kelly Gissendainer was the Georgia woman executed last September. She was lost. She was unsure of who she was. She was abused and molested by her family members. She never knew herself as beloved. She married young, had a hard marriage, fell into a terrible affair, assisted in the murder of her husband, and her identity became convicted murderer. Going to prison, she began to study the Bible, and through an inspiring story that I hope you will find and read online, she connected to the famous German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, a prisoner of the Nazis during the Holocaust and a survivor. Kelly started a theological studies program for prisoners through Emory University's Candler School of Theology, and she found her true self, writing, Despite a guillotine hovering over my head, I still possess the ability to prove that I am human. Labels on anyone can be notoriously unforgiving, but no matter the label attached to me, I have the unstoppable desire to accomplish something positive and have a lasting impact. I have placed my hope in the God I now know, the God whose plans and promises are made known to me in Jesus. Though it was too late for her husband, 
It was not too late for her to come to terms with who she was, to move from repentance to self-forgiveness to acceptance, to be called to live out a higher purpose even behind bars. And with the right I am, she pursued a life of I will for God without her audacity, singing amazing grace as she went to the death chambers. We Christians hear the words, I am, and we think of God's self-revealing. Abraham and Sarah responded and overturned their lives because God said, I am God Almighty. In the Gospel of Jesus, Jesus' I am statements disclose his nature and his purpose. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life, the good shepherd, the way. Jesus is sure of who he is. God defines self-knowledge and self-acceptance. So it seems odd to me that Jesus, knowing who he was, was seeking to understand what others knew of him. Here in the 8th chapter of Mark, why does Jesus care what people think? Was he really unclear on this? These are the kinds of questions we would ask, not God. What does the world say about me? Who do my friends think I am? Who do you say that I am? Wouldn't concern about how others defined him be so yesterday for Jesus? What do people think of him? Who cares? What if Jesus isn't asking for himself at all? Why would he fish for an answer he already knows? Maybe he wants someone to say it. Maybe he wants to be sure they are perfectly clear on it. But maybe, maybe he also wants to prompt them to ask the same questions of themselves. After all, soon he'll be gone and they'll be in the position of doing the asking. They'll be in his position, conveying to the world who he is and why it matters. You see, the timing is very important of this story. This conversation is a hinge point in Mark's gospel. Here we see Jesus turn from what has been going on, his public ministry, to all that is about to happen, the hard stuff. Jesus is turning, as in Richard Rohr's second part of life, to act two. And with the disciples, we all shift from Jesus inviting us to name him, this unconventional savior as the Christ, to, so what does that mean? What is it to be the Christ? Knowing they fully get his identity, now he pursues the next course, changes the conversation to his purpose, the actions to follow, all the things that are going to happen, the garden, the trial, the crucifixion, the great I am is about to be the great I will. And it's act two. But it's more than a hinge for Jesus. We are invited to hinge with him. Remember that Mark is always focused on Jesus being a human. The son of man, as he describes himself, is translated in today's uh, translation, the human one. Mark wants us to connect with Jesus, human to human. We're like him. Our self-identity is to be closely aligned with him. The human one must do certain things. So must we. 
I am who I am as God's beloved child now becomes I will do what God calls me to do. Jesus knows who he is, and so do they, and the time has arrived to live that out. We, too, are called beyond our search for self-identity and acceptance to live out our calling as Jesus' people to move from I am to I will. In Lent, in particular, such questions resonate deeply within us. Who does the world say that I am? Who do those closest to me say that I am? Who do I say that I am? But our job as human ones is to move beyond the focus on human things from seeking for others to tell us who we are towards divine things, knowing who we are in Christ, God's beloved and accepted people, and to move from I am to I will. Charlotte Elliott spent a lot of her life wondering who she was. She was an invalid most of her life. She lived in England. She felt useless and purposeless. She had no I will. But then a house guest came by, and she had a conversation with him that helped her to realize that in her state of being, she was God's child, beloved, imperfect, and accepted. That is who she was. Just as I am, she thought. Just as I am, I can be useful to God. Out of her human suffering, she wrote the lyrics to a famous hymn, translated into many languages. All kinds of people have sung it, made it their prayer of self-acceptance and humble penitence. And though it was used for many years by Billy Graham in his crusades as a call to the altar, it's actually a call beyond the altar to act two of our faith. Just as I am, I come. I am what I am, and God is who God is. But knowing ourselves, may we also seek to know Jesus, and knowing him, may our prayer of penitence lead us fully into Act 2. The I come, the I will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God, because we are not strong enough to pray as we should, you provide Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit to intercede for us in power. In this confidence, we ask you to accept our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Let us pray for your church. Faithful God, you gather your church from all the corners of the earth. You call those who are outcasts sinners, those who are broken, and you welcome them and show them mercy so that they might be witnesses to your salvation. Strengthen this congregation to seek your will for this community, and strengthen your church universal to seek your will for the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us pray for creation. Creator of all things, you have called humankind to be stewards of your good gifts. Yet we again and again misuse these gifts for our own selfish gain. Instill in us again your love, so that we might give thanks by loving and caring for our neighbors and for all of your creation, 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us pray for peace and for justice. You, O God, are both Prince of Peace and Judge of all nations. You created humankind in your image not for our destruction, but for community and for our salvation. Help us all to know one another as sisters, as brothers, one human family, your children, whom you love and favor. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us pray for those who suffer. God of compassion, your Son Jesus Christ gives rest to those who carry heavy burdens. Tend to those in this congregation and in this community who are sick, who are sad, who grieve, who are anxious, who are oppressed. There are no depths too deep for your Spirit's presence, O God. Accompany all in need and bear them up in your merciful arms. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of glory, you see how all creation groans in labor as it awaits your redemption. As we work for and await your new creation, we trust that you will answer our prayers with grace. And fulfill your promise that all good things work, or all things work together for good for those who love you. And now let us together say the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.